0: Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Wednesday, September 15th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, SpaceX's Inspiration4 all-civilian crew is blasting off tonight from Cape Canaveral. Here's everything you need to know about the historic launch. Plus, the Maori Party in New Zealand has introduced a petition to rename the country its Maori language name, Aotearoa. And a newly identified species of insect has been named after RuPaul. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Well, this one snuck up on me. SpaceX's Inspiration4 mission is launching tonight at 8pm Eastern. Or at least that's the start of the 5-hour launch window, whether depending, they could take off any time in that window or tomorrow, Thursday, at 8pm Eastern. Inspiration4 is the much-hyped all-civilian crew funded by billionaire Jared Isaacman and consisting of himself and three others, none of whom are astronauts or work for any space agency. They are Cyan Proctor, a geoscientist and science educator from Arizona who was previously a finalist for NASA's Astronaut Class of 2009 but wasn't ultimately selected. Now, as pilot of the Inspiration4 mission, she's making history as the first black woman to serve as pilot of a spacecraft. Proctor's call sign, which each of the crew got as a part of their fighter jet training recently, is LEO. Christopher Sombroski, call sign Hanks, is a data engineer at Lockheed Martin in Washington who once worked as a counselor at Space Camp. Haley Akrono, callsign NOVA, has received perhaps the most attention this year of all the crew members. I've mentioned her a few times on this podcast. The St. Jude's Children's Hospital physician assistant is set to become the youngest American ever to travel to orbit at age 29, and is the first person with a prosthetic body part to go to space. Akrona was a cancer patient at St. Jude as a child before growing up to work there, and St. Jude's is the charity partner of Inspiration4, which aims to raise $200 million for the organization. And finally, there's Isaacman, callsign Rook, who founded the company Shift 4 Payments. Having learned to pilot advanced aircraft as a hobby following his financial success, Isaacman fell into this whole affair after discussing with SpaceX about investing in their company. According to the New York Times, during those discussions, he told company officials that he wanted to buy a trip to orbit someday, and things kind of spiraled from there. The other three all got their seats from various competitions and selection programs run by Isaacman and his company, determined to find three everyday people. They are extraordinary folks who've done some awesome things, of course, but they aren't billionaires or trained astronauts. They're symbols of the idea that any of us could go to space in the future. And unlike some recent suborbital flights, these four are going to experience the real deal. They'll be traveling inside a Crew Dragon capsule named Resilience that will launch on top of a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket, the same system that takes NASA astronauts to the ISS. But instead of visiting the space station, they'll orbit Earth for three days, getting some unbelievable views of the planet at 360 miles altitude. As people cover this story, there's been one point of syntactical confusion. What do we call these four individuals? Are they astronauts? And with all these private citizens going up to space this year, the Federal Aviation Administration actually updated its requirements for gaining your astronaut wings as having traveled 50 miles or more above the Earth's surface, which the Inspiration Crew will definitely be doing. They're actually going even higher than the ISS. And also more subjectively, quote, demonstrated activities during flight that were essential to public safety or contributed to human spaceflight safety, end quote. This crew will be getting their wings, I believe. They've been through rigorous, compressed astronaut training over the last several months, but despite that, they are not paid employees of a space agency, nor have they gone through the years of formal astronaut training, with the exception of Proctor, who did most of it. So a lot of places have been calling them amateur astronauts or civilian astronauts, although Ars Technica points out that technically civilian means a person not in the armed forces and there have therefore been... 15 previous all-civilian orbital flights, so that would make all of the first-ever all-civilian spaceflight headlines incorrect. All-private might be more accurate. Others are calling them tourists because this flight is being thought of as heralding the age of space tourism. Rick Tumlinson over at Space.com has a good rebuttal against calling them tourists, however. Quote, call them citizen explorers, private astronauts, call them anything else, but do not demean their amazing and incredible journey into the heavens by slapping the ridiculously overused term tourist on them. That is, of course, unless you are also willing to use the word to describe every other person who has strapped themselves on top of a controlled bomb to fly to a place that could kill you in exquisitely awful ways to achieve whatever goals they may have had. End quote. It's a decent point, although if and as more private citizens make the trip to space, we'll definitely need to continue reevaluating what it means and what restrictions there are. Like, do we tax the enormous carbon footprints of rockets, especially if multiple companies are going to start offering flights? There's a lot of debate and a lot of uncertainty, because despite the fact that civilian travel to space has been discussed for decades, and despite little fits and starts towards it here and there, this really is a landmark mission. Quoting the MIT Technology Review... Never before have people traveled to orbit without being propelled by their wealth and without the oversight of a national space agency such as NASA. The goals of the mission are limited, there are some scientific experiments planned, but the most notable aspect of the mission is what will not happen. In particular, none of the crew will directly pilot the spacecraft. Instead, it will be controlled autonomously and with the help of mission control back down on Earth." That is not a trivial change, explains spaceflight expert Jonathan McDowell of the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, and there are risks involved. For the first time, if the automatic systems don't work, you could be in real trouble, he says. What this shows is the increased confidence in the software and automatic control systems that allow you to fly tourists without a chaperone, end quote. And though McDowell just injected some real fear in me, I will add that Proctor and Isaacman went through training to pilot the space. Craft if it loses contact with mission control, according to Wired. And Wired also expands on some of those experiments that are planned. Quote, They're bringing along scientific equipment that Akrono and others will use to study the health effects of space radiation and extremely low levels of gravity. Radiation can damage DNA and lead to cancer. NASA is in the process of setting new exposure limits for astronauts. Proctor plans to spend time on her art and poetry, while Sembrowski will entertain the crew with his ukulele. End quote. It might sound a little blasé at first blush, but the MIT Tech Review reminds us of NASA's spaceflight participant program in the 80s. Tragically ended after the death of the first-ever program participant in the Challenger explosion, the program was started, in part, to get better communicators and artists into space who could express the true wonders of the experience to people back on Earth. So spending time on poetry and music is really in keeping with decades-long intentions. Once again, the launch will be sometime this evening as early as 8:02 p.m. Eastern. You can stream it on SpaceX's YouTube channel or on Netflix's YouTube channel starting at 7 p.m. Eastern, where hosts Karamo Brown and Soldat O'Brien will be joined by a slew of other celebrities and astronauts in a live stream of the launch. The Inspiration4 crew are currently the subjects of an ongoing Netflix docu-series showcasing the training that they've been undergoing. The docu-series promises to follow the crew until landing with the next and final episode not airing until September 30th but broken up by tonight's live stream. It's a fascinating experiment by Netflix. You know, posting a docu-series as it's still being shot is rare, although not revolutionary. Including a live element as a penultimate episode has full-on reality show vibes. But when the subject of the show is the world's first ever fully private spaceflight and your carefully orchestrated livestream depends on the precarious performance of a rocket launch, well, let's just say they finally got my attention for this show. On Monday, I talked about how Lord released a companion album to her recent Solar Power LP which re-recorded five of the tracks in the Māori language. Well another interesting Māori language-related development this week is that the Māori Party in New Zealand have started a petition to change the official name of the country from New Zealand to Aotearoa, which is its official name in the Māori language. The petition also calls for all towns, cities, and place names to be restored to their Maori names. The United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, approved by New Zealand in 2007, does state that Indigenous peoples have the right to, quote, designate and retain their own names for communities, places, and persons, end quote. And as a comparison, places like Wales and Ireland have bilingual street signs in English and in Welsh and Irish, respectively, as a legal requirement. Many places in Ireland only have Irish language signs since Irish is the first official language of the country. And the point of bilingual or multilingual signs is to recognize, preserve, and promote language and culture. The Maori party is asking for more than bilingual street signs, though, which I should note are mostly absent in New Zealand, although allegedly might be coming soon, quoting CNN, It's well past time that Te Reo Maori was restored to its rightful place as the first and official language of this country. We are a Polynesian country. We are Aotearoa, reads the statement, which calls for the renaming process to be completed by 2026. Tangata whenua are sick to death of our ancestral names being mangled, bastardized, and ignored. It's the 21st century. This must change, it reads. Tangata whenua means people of the land, but is used to refer to the Maori people in general. Fluency in the Maori language fell from 90% in 1910 to 26% in 1950, according to the statement. In only 40 years, the crown managed to successfully strip us of our language, and we are still feeling the impacts of this today, said the party. Today, only 3% of people living in the country can speak the language, it added, end quote. Maori columnist and senior lecturer at the University of Otago, Morgan Godfrey, wrote about the potential name change last month in The Guardian, explaining that one ploy being tried by the niche far-right opposition party is to shed doubt on the authenticity of the name's origin. Apparently, some point to historical records that indicate Aotearoa might have been invented by historians in the 19th century, the kind of mythologizing of the past that was rampant in that era. But there are some records of the name being used in Maori language newspapers and manuscripts a few decades before the historian and politician William Pember Reeves allegedly invented it. Quoting Godfrey, The counterargument to this charge is obvious and worth stating for the record. All names are inventions. When the Dutchman Abel Tasman, who spent less than a week in Aotearoa christened the country for Europe, he was also inventing a new name in New Zealand, a borrowing from his native Holland. And Godfrey continues later in the piece, quote, "...as historian Rawiri Tanui rightly argues, Aotearoa did not emerge out of the ether, or indeed out of the mind of a 19th century gentleman. Instead, it finds its source in Maori oral histories. Tanui, who is an expert in Maori oral history, cites 30 to 40 examples between 1846 and 1861. The origins of those oral histories handed down generation to generation are likely much older." But this leaves one question unanswered. Doesn't even matter if there is historical precedent for Aotearoa? Of course not. The early European explorers understood the power of naming, hence their international effort to remake the world in the English language. Maori understand the same imperative, and enough Maori accept Aotearoa as the name for New Zealand that its historic fidelity no longer matters. End quote while the debate is heating up between politicians, Godfrey insists that the general public really doesn't care too much, or at least not nearly as much as some politicians would make it seem. And Aotearoa is already frequently in use. And which, I gotta say, does just sound really cool. They've got my vote. Rupaul's cultural impact has officially extended to the world of insects. A newly identified species of soldier fly has officially been dubbed Opaluma Rupal. Quoting the Guardian, The rupaul fly is part of a new Australian genus named Opaluma, from the Latin words for opal and thorn, because they look like little gems buzzing around the forest floor and have a distinctive thorn tucked under their abdomen. End quote. Dr. Brian Lessard, who named Opaluma RuPaul, said that naming this particular soldier fly after the drag star was, quote, an obvious decision. I was watching a lot of RuPaul's Drag Race while examining the species, and I know it would challenge RuPaul on the runway serving fierce looks. It has a costume of shiny metallic rainbow colors, and it has legs for days. I think once Ru sees the fly, she'll realize it's quite fierce and hopefully appreciate the name. End quote. Opaluma rupaul is hardly the first insect species to be given a creative pop culture referencing name. Ten years ago, Dr. Lessard named a horsefly, Scaptia beyoncei. And included in the lineup of 150 new species named in the last year by Australian's Governmental Science Research Agency, CSIRO, alongside Opaluma Rupal are three beetles named after Pokemon. Binburum Artucuno, Binburum Zapdos, and Binburum Moltres. I don't know which is harder to pronounce, these Latin names or the Pokemon. There is also a Cyadborine Weevil named in honor of a creature with similar characteristics from Digimon, Demuris Digimon. Naming new species after characters or people from pop culture always brings criticism from fellow scientists and the public alike, but Lassard insists that the names help raise awareness about the species and about a field of science that the public is often uninterested in or unaware of. I mean, I probably wouldn't be talking about this new soldier fly species if it weren't for the name. And in particular, Lassard and CSIRO point out that many of these soldier flies are from areas impacted by bushfires and are often forgotten in recovery efforts. But says Lassard, quote, soldier flies are valuable in the ecosystem. The larvae recycle nutrients from dead plants and animals, while adults are pollinators of some of Australian plants, end quote. Soldier flies and other insects are a crucial part of Australia's biodiversity, and a few of the newly identified species on this list have officially been recognized as endangered species. Lissard says that official designation, quote, allows citizen scientists, conservation scientists, and even policymakers to go out there and protect them so that we can enjoy them for future generations. We don't want endangered species to sashay away into extinction, end quote. Well, that's it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kaki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.